So there's a, um, a movie I've been wanting to watch, actually. It falls in the category of documentary, and probably I found out after first service a lot of people had seen it. Um, and that is the story of Alex Honnold, um, and the title of the movie is Free Solo, is right? Uh, it's the story of this guy who actually, uh, not too long ago, uh, ascended El Capitan without ropes, right? And you're like, well, big deal, right? Let's just, just to put this in perspective, here's a picture for you. It is a 3,000-foot cliff. If you've ever gone into Yosemite Valley, and you know, I grew up in California, so Yosemite is like, you know, it's Northern California backyard kind of a thing. It's like, every time I pass that wall, it is just, it just, it's ominous. It's like a titan. It's like this monolith of rock, right? And sometimes we as a family would stop, pull over to the side, and you look up there, and you can barely make out these little tiny ants of people, like, just crawling up the side with ropes, you know? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big, big deal, and it's ominous. I, I can't imagine climbing it with ropes, right? So anyway, I heard this, and then they made it into a movie, and they filmed the whole thing, right? Like his practicing, his preparations, and then the actual execution of this, of this ascent. So on my short flight back from Israel, um, I had the opportunity, you know, 13 hours to watch it, and it's dark in the fuselage of the airplane, and, and I'm watching it. And it was fascinating to, to um, see how much he practiced with ropes, right? All these different pitches he had to go up, and some of them were, were, were very difficult. Like at one point, they said he was on little ripples in the, in the, in the, in the granite, ripples, like holding from feet and fingertips. And all it would take is a sneeze to like cause you to fall. Like, <laughs> that's crazy, right? A sneeze. Well, there's one particular pitch where there's a difficult spot where, um, and they, 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 they focused in on this in the film, where, and, and he was on ropes when he tried this, where he would either have to like leap, <laughs> that guy's crazy lunatic, you have to leap, or he had to kick out like with this like ninja kick and there's this precise like thumb transfer hold where he would hold himself out by the sheer tension of the friction. And it showed him falling multiple times on, with ropes, right? And then, um, so the day comes, finally, where, you know, in, in my opinion, the movie spent way too much time exploring his relationship with his girlfriend that he almost broke up with. But, be that as it may, I just wanted to get to the good stuff. So, after all this practicing, and he took meticulous notes on handholds and all the difficult parts, you know, he, he, uh, the day came, and you see him walking up towards the face. And I just, you know, I'm watching the movie, and I know the end of the story. It doesn't make a difference that you know the end of the story. I was just like, found myself as, they, and they're filming it real time, and, the, and, the, and then the, the film crew is talking about what happens if he falls. Like, I don't want to see that. Some of the guys on the camera work are actually can't watch this. Without ropes, 3,000 feet up, that's how it, at the top, and, um, and it gets to that part, and I'm just like, I'm sweating in the plane. I'm like, I'm, a, I have a, I'm anxious, my heart is beating, and it gets to that one part where he has to do this ninja kick out, you know, where he had fallen with the ropes. And I just swallowed hard, I'm like, and I know the end of the story. And he, and, he, and he makes it, and he actually looks at the camera, like, who does that? And he <laughs> makes it to the top, and it's just like, of course, he's the, the only one who's ever done this free solo climb up one of the most difficult faces on earth. And uh, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Now, I'll tell you, I put myself in there and I thought, man, if someone put a gun to my family's head and they said, you climb that, I'd be like, I don't think I could do that. Like, I don't think in the new creation with a resurrected body that can't die, I still wouldn't do it. <laughs> it's just crazy. But it didn't happen in a vacuum and it didn't happen 
just all of a sudden decided one day to, to climb. No, it showed him practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing to make the climb. And it struck me this, like, how many Christians have that much of a passion and commitment to practice, practice, practice their faith? I mean, we're talking about eternity is at stake, faith. How, much, how many Christians actually spend time practicing their faith, like day in and day out? Now, let me just say, because some of your hackles are going up when I say practice, is that sometimes when we talk about Christian discipline or Christian training or practice of your faith, um, we get nervous because it almost sounds like you're going to save yourself, like through your own discipline, like kind of a works-based salvation. And, and I just want to say for the record, when we talk about practice, that in no way implies or explicitly teaches that um, you're going to save yourself through your discipline or through your, uh, through your training or practicing. I mean, from beginning to end, we'd have to acknowledge that the salvation is the work of God. He initiated it. He sent his son. He died for us as a sacrifice, paying a debt we couldn't pay for ourselves. He rose again to put us in perfect standing with him. He gave us a spirit to incline us to actually want to follow him. And then he gave us the promise of this return where everything will be made right. And so from beginning to end, like God is in charge of salvation. It's by grace alone, correct? And we would say, yes. You should say yes. But we shouldn't think that the fact that God accomplishes the salvation and brings us into covenant with himself, that we are not also then responsible to live out that faith. Like, the categories into which we understand our relationship with God is called covenant, right? We're going to celebrate this, this new covenant, uh, Lord's Supper, which reminds us that we're in covenant with God. God's committed to us, and by nature of what he's done for us, we're in right, proper relationship. The whole idea of covenant means there's responsibility on our part, too. I mean, Michael Horton, who is like a champion of sovereign grace, said the idea of covenant does not diminish our personal responsibility. It actually intensifies our personal responsibility to actually walk and live out our faith or to practice our faith. How many people, when they get married, after they tie the knot, think, well, I don't have to do anything, right? <laughs> Your marriage wouldn't last if you're just like, well, I don't have a responsibility now to love my wife. And you tell me, how many people, when they got married, loved perfectly? I don't know of a single person, right? You might think you love perfectly because, you know, you're Twitter-pated and you have all those great emotions and Karen Carpenter's going through your head. We've only just begun to live widely and promise, you know, all that stuff. And you just have uh, stars in your eyes and think everything's going to be perfect. Then boom, oh, wow. Like, loving somebody in covenant, actually, it takes practice, doesn't it, to, like, to, to actually love another human who's also broken, who has a distinct personality, to know how to love them in the way they need to be loved? That takes practice. It takes practice humbling yourself and acknowledging when you're wrong, and then it takes practice and perseverance in love and patience and all of those things. And that practice, over time, can make a marriage sing. It takes practice. And the same is true of our relationship with the Lord. He's established a covenant with us, but that in covenant comes with this sense of responsibility to practice our faith. And just a couple of verses to reinforce that before we look at First and Second Samuel is, is simply this. Now, this is Paul. The first one is Paul, the apostle of grace, who said, by grace you've been saved through faith. All right on. But he tells his young apprentice, he says, train yourself. And the train is present active, which means it's durative or continual. So he's like, continue to train yourself, discipline yourself, practice for godliness. Uh, 2 Peter 1.5, he says, he did, 
Let me leave the word out. He's, he doesn't say make effort or make an effort. He says make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And again, back to Paul, who has no problem putting together the idea of grace and personal responsibility in one verse. And he doesn't have to explain how it works together. It's not a problem to resolve. It's a tension to accept. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what he said. This is your part. For, and there he clarifies, it is God who is at work in you. This is the grace part, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the work we do is in his grace. At the same time, he says, work. Make every effort. Train yourself. So imagine if we had this mindset. It's like God has established covenant with us. Now our job is to, dependent upon what God has already done, to practice what it means to live by faith. And I believe that's part of what it means to push through the failure and continue to experience a fruitful life as well as the increasing freedom of what it means to be a child of God. So to that end, I want to compare and contrast for you a wrong way and a right way. Um, that is, I want to compare and contrast two of Israel's first kings, King Saul and King David. Now, what they both share is they both share a calling to kingship. They both um, are seen as worshipers of the Lord at some level. Um, they both have victories. And both of these men, Saul and David, have massive failures, like massive catastrophic moral failures that will lead to tragic loss of life, all right? So massive failures on both these kings' part, but they live two very different lives. One lives a life dominated by fear, and the other lives by a life dominated by faith. And while they both fail, they both end in two very different places. Saul ends up in a place of self-destruction, and David ends up back in a place where he's restored to the throne. So you have two men walking two different ways, experience the same kinds of failure that end up in two different places. The, the, answer, the question is, so what's the difference? And someone might say, well, it's the grace of God. Well, of course it is. Um, it's the sovereign grace of God. Well, of course it is, but... God's sovereign grace also uses means. And these examples are given to us to teach us. And I think the difference is one lives by faith, the other lives by fear. Okay? So what I want to do is I want to pull out the fear side and then the faith side. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together to remind us of the covenant commitment we have with Jesus. All right? On the Saul side of things, from the very moment he is really introduced in First Samuel, and let me just say for you guys out there who have never really read um, some really like good action-packed stories of the Bible, First and Second Samuel were just like my favorites. When I first like came back to my faith, they're just so full of battle and faith and conquest and mighty men. I I just loved it. So, that's digression. Um, so, 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 on the day that Saul is going to be chosen as king. And he knows he's going to be chosen as king, First uh, Samuel chapter 10. The text tells us that they tried to find him and they couldn't find him. And why was that? Well, was, he was hiding among the baggage. You know, people in Israel bringing their bags to have a big meeting to coronate the king. Now, there's only a couple of reasons why I think somebody would, 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 would hide. And I doubt it was playing hide-and-go-seek. <laughs> he hid because he was afraid. And unfortunately, this little glimpse into the beginning of his, his rule would be the omen 
of his entire reign, is a man of fear. So you skip forward a couple of, of chapters in chapter 13, and the king has, has an enemy that is massing in the Judean hills called the Philistines, and the numbers are almost uncountable. And what is the king who's supposed to be the spiritual leader and the person who says, hey, the Lord is here. He's our rock, our salvation. He doesn't save by many. He can save by one, but he doesn't. The description of his enemy is this, and you can sense the size. In the text, he says, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots. I don't even know what that looks like. I don't know if you could do, you could probably do that CGI, right? 30,000 chariots. Um, 6,000 horsemen, that's a huge cavalry, 6,000 horses. And troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude, they came up and encamped at Michmash. That's up not too far away from Jerusalem, to the east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that they were in distress, that is, they were supremely outnumbered, for the troops were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Some Hebrews crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, that is not too far away, and all the people followed him trembling. So there's this huge enemy approaching, and all the Jewish troops are like going, run away, and they're running away and hiding even in tombs, right? And so Saul, the king, who again was the spiritual leader and the representative of the Lord, um, doesn't know what to do. And we're told that Samuel the prophet, who's like God's voice to him, said, hey, listen, wait for me seven days, and at the end of seven days, I'll meet you, and then we'll offer up a, a sacrifice and ask for the Lord's favor in battle. Um, and then ideas, you'd go to war. So Saul is there. He sees his troops leaving, and he, I think the reading between the lines, he became afraid. Samuel doesn't show up. Maybe he's caught in Jerusalem traffic. We don't know. And so what does he do? He takes control. He takes matters into his own hands, again, fearful that his, he would lose, fearful he'd lose more guys, and so he offers the sacrifice himself and crosses a boundary. His fear leads to failure. His fear leads to a trespass. And as soon as he does, Samuel shows up and says, what were you doing? Again, he is a man who lives by, lets the fear get the best of him, and it shows itself in impatience. It's not going to wait he takes matters into his own hands, and he fails miserably. He's a man who walks a path of fear. that is dominated by this fear inside, and it makes, moves him to make the wrong choices. Now, let me just say this. Fear? Fear is easy. It's what we naturally do in the face of hardship. Faith? Faith is hard. Faith to wait. Faith to be patient. Faith to wait for the Lord to show up. Fear is easy. It's where all of us can naturally live. It's our default. Faith is hard. So he's hiding amongst the baggage. In his, this major encounter with the enemy, he, he, he fumbles, he crumbles because of fear. Skip forward a couple more chapters. In chapter uh, 15, King Saul is given specific commands. He, he's told, listen, I want you to go down to the nation of the Amalekites and I want you to wipe them out. Leave nothing alive. Now, 21st century mindset, we don't understand that, but it was an act of divine judgment that was understood then. And so he goes with this very specific command, wipe them out because of the uh, hostility they showed the people of Israel. This is, a, this is a judgment. 
But he decides to do his own thing. So he gets down there and he saves the best of the sheep and he saves the king alive. He, does, he, 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 he blatantly disregards the explicit commands of, of Scripture. So again, the prophet Samuel comes up and says, what did you do? I hear sheep. I see a king that's still alive. You didn't follow the word of the Lord. And after some justification, some him and hawing and some excuses, he finally owns up to the fact that it was out of what? He says, verse 24, chapter 15, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord of Yahweh and your words because I what? I feared the people and obeyed their voice. At this point, his fear of the Lord is down. The fear of the people is way up. And again, he fails. He is living a life of practiced fear. Fear is easy. Faith is hard. Skip forward a couple more chapters. You see a little theme rising of this man's rule. He doesn't seem to be a man of faith. He seems to be a man dominated by fear. Now, all of us have fears. The question is, does it dominate us and, and move us to make the wrong choices? So a couple more chapters. Chapter 17. A very, very, probably the most famous battle in all of the Old Testament in which there is this massive guy named Goliath, the Philistine champion. He's out on the Valley of Elah. And where's the king, the spiritual king? He's back behind the king with his troops, and he is trembling. You think about what a king's job is to do, especially a king that represents the Lord. Say, the Lord trains my, my hands for battle, my fingers for war. The Lord is my steadfast love. He's my shield, my defender, our fortress. He brought down the entire nation of, of Egypt and the Pharaoh without us raising a finger so he can take this guy out, but he doesn't. It says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words, the words of Goliath defying the armies of Israel, it says that they, that is Saul and the people of Israel, his troops were dismayed and greatly afraid. They're behind him jitters. Again, this is his, his default. He lives by fear, not by faith. Fear is easy. Faith is hard. And you get fast forward to the end of his life. Near the end of his life, he again experiences another massive invasion of the Philistines. This is chapter 28 of 1 Samuel. And um, as a result, again, we, we find him deeply afraid. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines on the Jezreel Valley, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And you know what he did? The Lord had shut down communications by this point, And Saul the king, he wanted to know the outcome. He wanted to know that everything was going to be okay. He wanted to know that he'd win. He wanted to know that he'd be alive. Don't we all want to know the future? I mean, that it's going to be positive. Sons, daughters, health, country. Like, we want to know the future. God has shut down communications. And so what does he do? Again, he takes matters into his own hands. And he visits a medium. That is a witch of sorts which is explicitly forbidden in the laws of Moses and the New Testament. Uh, divination is looked down horribly in the whole of the Bible as a way of bypassing God's sovereignty, messing with divine things. So he visits this witch, says, I need to know the, the answer. This. And uh, wouldn't you know it, she brings back Samuel's spirit from the dead. And I, I, th I think she was surprised to which, in the text, which tells me she didn't really expect him to come back. But God, like, allows him to come back, and he goes, guess what? This is Samuel talking to Saul. Guess what? You're going to die tomorrow, and you're going to lose. That's not the news he wanted to hear. 
But in his fear, he crossed a boundary, did something he knew he shouldn't do because he was afraid. And in the final moment of his life, and this is where I'll, I'll stop with him. In the final moment of his life, he sees the battle has turned against him. He sees the enemy coming. And fearful that he'd fall into the hands of the enemy, what does he do? He falls on his sword. Uh, this is like a Shakespearean tragedy. It was kind of started with him hiding in the baggage and it just got worse. Failure after failure because he lived a life dominated by fear. It's easy to give in to fear. It's hard to trust the Lord that you can't see. And yet, how many of us can actually look at him and go, I can, I can understand how he'd feel that way. Um, there's a lot of things to be fearful about. And I think everybody struggles with fear at some point. The question is, does it determine what you do? Does it dominate your affections and your heart and your choices? That's, that's the question. Do you practice a life of giving in to fear? Because what you practice is how you respond. What you practice is how you respond. I, years ago, and nobody knows this person, so don't try and figure it out. Years ago, there's this young lady, and she was bright and beautiful, and she had such a heart for the Lord, and she wanted to go into missions. And um, the only problem for her was that she wasn't married. Now, you can still go into missions without being married, but she felt she needed to be married to go into missions. So she waited. You know, the Lord would bring along a nice Christian boy. And time went on, and no Christian boy. And pretty soon, um, her trust that the Lord would bring someone along and her willingness to wait for him was clouded by doubt and disbelief. And you know what she ended up doing? She ended up compromising and marrying a guy who was neither a Christian nor was he a very good person. And it completely derailed her life because she allowed fear to determine her choice. It's, don't we do that? There's people, Christians, who find themselves struggling with addiction and they don't want to tell anybody why. Because of fear. Fear of shame, fear of a bad reputation, and so they live in a prison caused by their own fear. When the Lord tells us in James, listen, confess your sins one to another. Not for the sake of shame, but because you need help. You see how, how fear can completely keep you captive? And, you know, and I don't know what your fear point is. It usually has to do with what you value the most or love the most. If it's your kids and you're going to be fearful about your kids and their future. Or maybe a wayward kid. It could be finances. It could be um, retirement or lack of retirement. It could be health. There's lots of fear, and in one sense, we're going to experience fears. The question is, does it dominate your decisions, or do you live by faith? Really good question. I think Saul's example would be, don't go this path. <laughs> don't let fear determine your, 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 your future. And let me just add this one, too. It's not just in the negative of dealing with sin. It also has to do with, what if the Lord calls you to, to, to start an evangelistic Bible study in your, in your neighborhood? Like you, maybe you feel a tug, or maybe you've been moved upon to, I really should be teaching, or I should serve in a particular way, or, or out in the community. Maybe I, should, maybe I should be a Cub Scout master or a Boy Scout master, and you fail because you're too afraid. Fear keeps you from on, going on the offensive, too, and just, hey, I'm going to be a Christian out there in the way that God is leading me. Don't let fear dictate. Rather, on the positive side, let's, let's learn to live by faith. Now, at this point, we transfer over to David. Again, David blows it big time, but what you find in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is that he, he's a guy who typically responds with faith, like he has a real knowledge of the Lord, and you see him stepping out in, in faith. So, 
in the same chapter where Saul and his troops are hearing Goliath out on the battlefield and they're trembling greatly, little young David comes along, probably a young man or, a, or mid, mid-teen, and he comes along and he says this to the king. He says, the Lord, he knows him, calls him by name, Yahweh, who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. That tells you right there, that sh- simple short verse, that he has already learned to act in faith. When he's guarding his, uh, he's a shepherd, he's guarding his sheep for his father, and then a lion comes, and we shouldn't think of African lions here, they're much smaller in, in the Middle East, there's not a big African lion, but a lion comes, and what does he do? He doesn't run away in fear. No, he stands his ground, trusts that the Lord has got this for him, and he, he, he slays the lion. And then another time, a bear comes, and instead of running away in fear, he stands his ground, he trusts that the Lord is with him, he's going to save him, deliver him, and he takes out the bear. So he's like, hey, listen, I've experienced the Lord's power by my simply standing my ground and trusting. So this large, eight-foot man, I'm not afraid, not because I'm so courageous, but because I've seen God work through my faith. So what does he do? The young boy goes out, armed with nothing but a sling and some stones, and and boom, done. Man falls, Philistines run, all because a young man believed. It was a habit of faith. It was a practice of faith, right? He practices faith. And I'm, I'm going to cut this somewhat short for time, but... If you look at the span of what happened after this, you realize he constantly lived in this dependence upon the Lord. And what I mean by that, and this is a contrast to to his nemesis Saul, is that Saul was the first king, and as soon as he found out that David was a rival, because he was increasing in, in favor with the people, he wanted to kill him. So you have the ruling king wanting to kill the future king, and he chased him all around for probably the better part of a decade. Now, that is a long time to be on the run. And there are multiple points in David's life where it's almost as if God served up Saul on a silver platter. But David refuses to take matters into his own hands. He refuses to take control, cross a boundary, and execute his enemy. So you have these little texts like this where King Saul is into a cave to relieve himself, which probably meant he had to go to the bathroom. And he's in there by himself, and his David's men are all in the dark, and his guys are like, yeah, they, now you, you got him. And he refuses. He's like, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. In other words, I'm not going to take the, the throne. I'm going to let God give it to me. He's going to have to take him off. That's what you call patient waiting faith. And, and he did it for years and years and years. The point being, church, is that contrasted to a man whose life was governed by fear is here a, a man whose, whose life is patterned on faith of trusting the Lord in and out of events of life. And uh, if you, an even bigger picture of what's going on in the heart of David is, is expressed through his psalms that he writes in almost every kind of experience and event, both bad and good, of life, where he expresses things like this. This is Psalm 86, 14 through 16. O oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. So he's experiencing massive conflict of people who want to kill him. 
And then he goes here, verse 15, but you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me, be gracious to me, give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. This is a prayer, but you notice in the middle of the prayer, he quotes a verse. Like verse 15 is a direct quote of Exodus 34, 6, where God reveals himself to Moses and said, this is who I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding. He's, he's quoting his Bible. Like he, he probably just had the first five books of Moses. We don't know for sure, but he had that. This tells us that the word of God was in his heart. And part of believing God is believing what the word reveals about God. It's not just that you believe in God in the general sense, like some kind of higher power. Like, but we don't really know who he is. Like, no, David's like, no, God showed himself. Like, I know his name. His name is Yahweh. I know that he is slow to be angry, but he's abounding in this thing called hesed or, or steadfast, gracious, merciful love. And I'm going to trust that. So he, 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 he trusts in the Lord constantly, in particular, in God's steadfast love or his grace, I think the New Testament would translate it. It's, again, the pattern of his life. So here's the thing, all right? Hopefully you've seen that this is a pattern. This was his practice. Again, fear is easy. Faith is harder. So when David blew it, right? Most everybody know, knows the story of David blowing it. Even unbelievers know the name of Bathsheba. They don't even, may not know the story, but they've heard the name Bathsheba because she's like iconic in the Bible. So David doesn't go out to battle with the rest of the guys. He's up on his palace roof, and he looks down, and behold, there's a, there's a naked beauty bathing herself, right? And he's moved by lust, and he takes her. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant, and he realizes he has a massive problem. He has, he has not only violated one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, but now he has to cover it up. And he tries, and he can't. So then conspiracy number two is conspiracy to commit murder. And so he conspires with his general, Joab, to leave her husband exposed on the front line. And they do, and he's killed. So now he's commit murder. And he gets away with it. The only one who knows about it is David and the Lord. Nobody else knows at this point. He blew it big time. And it would send him into civil war, uh, you know, as time would follow. And then the prophet comes, because God loves David, even in his failed state. And um, he tells him this little allegory, masterful allegory, where there's a bad guy. And then David's super mad by the allegory, and, and the prophet says, you know what? That man is you. And it's interesting how David responds Unlike Saul, who tends to justify and defer blame, come up with excuses, David simply says, says, I've sinned against the Lord. That's his first response, and that's, those are the words. I've sinned against the Lord. I think that's his way of completely taking ownership for what he did. There was no, and you know, he could have justified himself, as people do. Okay, what was that lady doing on the roof, buck naked? What was she thinking? She provoked me. And Uriah, why didn't he put a curtain? Right? Any responsible husband would have put a curtain around there to protect his wife. So it's partly his fault. Like, this is, this is a, there's culpability all the way around, so don't just take it out on me. You see, I could think of a thousand different justifications for it. David doesn't say that. And that's part of faith, too. And I think a healthy faith is when you screw up, and we screw up, don't blame anybody else but yourself. 
Don't blame the education system. Don't blame your mother. Don't blame your father. Don't blame your, uh, your impoverished circumstances growing up. Whatever it is, you just take ownership and say, this is me. That's where it has to be for the Christian. It's like when you do fail, just own up to it. And don't point fingers at other people. Just own up to it. And that's what he does. But I think that's an expression of faith because if you don't have a, some kind of mercy, forgiveness, or redemption, it's really hard to be fully and completely honest. Because the psalm that was read by Doug earlier is a psalm that shows us what he did with the Lord in regards to his massive failure. And what did he do? Well, he practiced what he always practiced. Battles, you know, um, being chased. He was a man whose pattern to live by faith, taking out a, a lion and even a bear. is like, so even in this, what does he do? He does the same thing. Even in his sin, he cast himself upon the Lord. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love. There's that biblical rooted word in the Bible itself of God's chesed or steadfast love. The quotation from Exodus 34, 6. I'm trusting that God's love is big enough, merciful enough, and his arms are forgiving enough that he will forgive me even this. So I will cast myself on, in faith upon the mercy of God. He's just doing what he's practiced. This time in the middle of his failure. And as a result, God restores him. Because he is a man who lives by faith. Whether he's living in times of prosperity and victory or even when he fails, he continues to throw himself underneath the shadow of the steadfast love of God, which is most fully displayed in, you know what, the cross of Jesus. If you want to know how much God loves us despite our sin, well, you just go there. David didn't have a clue, I don't think. I'm going to a clue. But he didn't see what we saw and what we see in the gospel. That is, God, um, God laid down the life of his own son to make sinners like you and I. Family members. That's the level and depth of his mercy. So why wouldn't we trust him with failure when he went to all that trouble to forgive us our sin? It reminds me of David's response here. I think he had a sense of what the Apostle Paul said and that is where sin increased, grace abound all the more. God's heart is big towards those who have failed but turned to him in faith. So here, let's bring these two back together, right? This is our time. Saul's time is done. David's time is done. They've run their races. They've finished. One ended in tragic death. The other ended in, in restoration. And mind you, if, if David had done now what he did then in our country as a leader... People would be crying impeachment, and I'm not making a joke. But this is a theocracy, and God in his grace restored him to kingship because that's his decision. So the question is for us, this is our journey now. How are we going to live? You know? And maybe you're a person, if you were to be really honest right now, you'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much, I let fear dictate too much how I live. Well, this is morning is a, is a time where to hear the word of the Lord and go, you know what, that's not how I want to live. I, I want to learn what it means to live by faith. I, I, I want to do the easy thing. I, I want to do the hard thing. I want, to, I want to actually trust the Lord. I want to trust him with my kids. And I want to trust him with my, my, my troubled marriage. I want to trust him with my finances. And I want to trust him with my future. I don't want to live with this constant fear dominating my decisions. 
And that's really what this message is about. It's like, right now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then he's given you the power to make a choice of faith in your life. It's not supposed to be faith just every once in a while in the big cataclysmic things. No, it's day-to-day living by faith in the Lord and trusting him and then in trust, obeying him. Is, uh, Is that something you're willing to live by? Listen, Alex Honnold, he went to all that trouble practicing, practicing, practicing to scale a cliff, which in eternity... I don't think we'll even be remembered. Maybe it will. But we've been called to live a life that honors and glorifies the Lord. A life that's lived by faith. And the beauty of it is, is that while it feels so fearful to live by faith, unlike him, we have ropes. What I mean by that is that he calls us to live by faith within the context of the cords and ropes of covenant. He loves us. He gave his life for us. He is committed to us. And now he calls us to live with a risky faith rather than giving in to fear, trusting that he has us. So as you come this morning to the table, I want this just to be a reminder of the covenant. That's what this is, right? Then the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it and blessed it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And then he took the cup, a symbol of his blood, and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, new relationship that's grounded in my sacrifice, which is offered for you. And as you do it, as often as you do it, remember me. Like, remember that this is the heart of our relationship with God, um, which guarantees that he'll never let us go. So as you come this morning to this covenantal meal, just if, you're, if you failed in terms of just giving in to fear, just confess that to him, trusting in his mercy. And then ask him, Lord, help me to live day by day by faith. Um, even though it's risky and feels hard, help me to live by faith. That's, that's how you push through the failure to experience fruitfulness and, and freedom in your life in Christ. Most of you know how this works, but if you don't, um, we have um, both gluten and gluten-free bread. You just have to ask for it. I am going to pray, and as I do, um, if I could have those who are serving communion join me up here. And also, this is a, a, a supper for those who believe that Jesus died for your sin and rose again for you. And if you believe that and you've surrendered to that, then I encourage you to come out and be a, be a, be a part of this covenantal reminder of a meal um, of how much Christ loves us. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, lift up to you this time and just ask that you would use it, use this bread and cup as a physical, tangible reminder of your love for us, that, um, that you have bound yourself in covenant to your people, and we are your people. Help us to walk in faith, not in fear, and we pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.